This changes everything. How many times have you heard or seen that clickbait phrase? Nowhere is this changes everything trope more common these days than in the battery and electric vehicle news and claims. Yes, the lithium battery is a big deal. I mean, the three men who jointly shared the Nobel Prize for the discovery and advancement of lithium battery chemistry deserve to that recognition. Lithium batteries unlocked all kinds of consequential new products, not least the smartphone and more useful portable appliances and small drones for industrial and commercial applications and toys, of course. And my favorite, untethered robots really absolutely require lithium batteries. And of course, the focus of this series of episodes, the arrival, drum roll, of a useful electric car. But revolutionary inventions are, they're hard to come by. And after the revolution, you look at history, and the reality of the real world we live in, after the revolution, after the step function, then one gets incremental changes in technology. The changes everything uh, doesn't happen very often and it takes it takes time, frankly. And that's the key lesson to understand the environmental, economic, and the practical challenges of the impossible dream. You know, the dream of EVs or the mandate for EVs for everyone. So, so far in this series, uh, I've outlined the unavoidable realities of the magnitude and the uncertainties about the magnitude of CO2 emissions associated with acquiring and refining the minerals to make EV batteries. And for those of you who have yet to listen to the previous two episodes, let me summarize the bottom line, but you should listen to those episodes if you don't believe me. The typical EV battery, battery weighs about a thousand pounds and it's made from a suite of minerals and metals all of which are far more rare than the iron and steel that constitute about 85% of the weight of a conventional car. So the key, again, for both environmental accounting and for economics is that the 1,000-pound EV battery, one battery, requires digging up roughly 500,000 pounds of the earth somewhere. And then you have to crush all that rock up using energy-intensive chemicals to extract and refine the minerals that are locked up interstitially in the rock and the ore. All the energy associated with that 500,000 pounds of industrial activity leads necessarily to CO2 emissions, given the nature of processes that exist in the world we live in. The key reality is that we know that those emissions associated with all that digging up and processing, the emissions are big. We also know that no one knows exactly how much those emissions are for any particular car or any particular process. Uh, it's a labyrinthine global supply chain. We do know that it's a significant enough emissions to wipe out typically half to two thirds of the CO2 that's saved by not burning gasoline in the conventional car over the lifespan of both cars. And this is the really important point. The upstream emissions from all that mining and refining can be, often are, uh, greater than assumed in all the simplistic claims that are made about EVs cutting CO2 emissions. The mining and refining emissions, in fact, can lead to as much CO2 emitted to the world, so it's one planet after all, the mining and refining emissions associated with producing one battery for one car before the EV is even driven can equal the quantity of CO2 emitted over the lifespan, lifespan of driving a conventional car burning gasoline. It's an inconvenient fact, uh, just the reality in the face of those facts, 
facts that I'll, I'll have to say again, these are not made up facts or fake news or hyperbole or means to insult people who make EVs. They're just facts from the technical literature. In fact, some of it's from the very same research and, and research reports from the International Energy Agency that promotes EVs. The face of these facts, what the most common response is, and I hear it all the time, I'm sure you do, it's probably in your head right now, the battery technology will get better. And then people wave around, or in the modern era, the social media equivalent of sharing, you know, the clickbait stories about battery technology breakthroughs that change everything. Of course, technology always gets better. The key is how fast and in what ways. For the EV in a battery-powered car, uh, again, that's a consequential technology. It constitutes a new model, a new market class for cars. And as we talked about in the first episode of this series, uh, very popular with a lot of people. And never mind policymakers and pundits and, and green advocates. A lot of people like the electric cars, and for good reason. Even without subsidies and mandates, all the world's car makers are chasing Elon Musk's company now because, well, he's eating their lunch in the most lucrative part of the car market, luxury cars. Tesla, as I said in the previous episode, is the number one luxury brand in the U.S. now. Last year, over 60% of all EVs sold in America were Teslas. It's a Tesla story. But again, they were in the luxury car category that constitutes about 15% of the overall car market, not the total car market. It's a big market, but it's a very profitable market. And only recently in Europe has VW caught up the Tesla total sales. Uh, the rest are spending and hyping to catch up, understandably. A lot of money to be made and a lot more EVs to sell yet. But can technologists deliver a magic battery that will obviate the heavy fact that the 250 tons of mining are needed to produce a single car battery? and then the associated emissions that come with that and the associated economic consequences. So let's. the answer is, by the way, <laughs> spoiler alert, no. <laughs> but let me explain why. And let's start with the key technology trope in this whole uh, EV domain. And that is that the EV is, you know, you've heard this, touted as a transition of technology comparable to the shift away from the horse and buggy. I mean, no, it's, it's that consequential. That's the claim. But changing how a car is powered that's really equivalent in relevance to the mobility revolution, as it were, is changing uh, a century ago uh, the nature and source of a horse's feed. Uh, it's different fuel. It's still a car. And in fact, to, to encourage adoption of the car when it was invented, governments, governments did not have to ban horses. They didn't have to subsidize cars. Yes, EVs, again, they appeal to millions of drivers. They're going to appeal to millions more, uh, mainly wealthy drivers, given the price of the cars, the luxury car category, and also to drivers who enthuse about, you know, the, quote, insane acceleration that EVs can offer and can offer to um, compete with the very most expensive, uh, you know, sports cars in the world. But equality in all features is what's needed to make EVs take over the market. All features of convenience, price, not just performance coming off the starting line, accelerating to, through the quarter mile. Yes, it's true, EVs offer, again, insane insane, uh, insane acceleration, and they offer a lot of other cool features. Uh, but the premise that EVs are technologically superior in every way to internal combustion engines uh, is sort of underlies the zeitgeist 
the claim that, and let me quote from uh, the Wall Street Journal's automotive columnist, Daniel, and I quote, he said, electric cars are going to take over the world, end quote. I do like, by the way, Dan Neal's car columns. He's a, a delicious writer. Uh, it's fun to read his columns about cars and driving some of the most expensive, exciting cars in the world. But the EV, in his mind, he's one of the, uh, in, in the camp of framing it as leaving the horse era. Uh, and then, even more than that, the analogy is that the EV is going to emulate the technology acceleration we've witnessed in computing and communications. It's a tech revolution, just like the arrival of the smartphone. Again, let me let me pick on Dan Neal again, uh, because he's a good writer and exemplifies his zeitgeist. Let me quote what he said about this revolution. Quote, remember flip phones, fax machines, and dial-up modems. You want an electric vehicle because they are generationally improved products, quieter, quicker, more refined, more efficient, offering superior vehicle dynamics, less maintenance, and lower per mile operating quote, costs, end quote. So Dan Neal, he's not alone in invoking this uh, hypertrophy tech analogy. The International Monetary Fund did a report on, on global EVs, and let me quote them, typical, similar uh, kind of uh, zeitgeist, quote, smartphone substitution seemed no more imminent in the early 2000s than large-scale energy substitution and EVs seem today, end quote. The notion that we're witnessing a tech night, tech, you know, a techie, tech-like acceleration, it's equivalent to uh, computing communications. The notion that EVs are going to accelerate like that in terms of market share, it's, I mean, to put it simply, it's worse than a canard. It's nonsensical in the energy physics of moving people and cargo compared to moving bits, data. If battery chemistry, the pillar of EV inevitability, if battery chemistry could follow the arc of computing's progress, we'd soon see a peanut-sized battery power a car over its lifetime on a single charge. So only in comic books does energy tech advance at that kind of pace, which is the Moore's law pace in information technology. Instead, if you map out the technological progress for EV batteries in terms of the key metric that matters, that's the energy stored per pound of battery, because that's why we have a thousand pound battery. So if you could improve the energy stored per pound of battery, you can re reduce the quantity of materials you need, and therefore the weight, and therefore the cost, and therefore the upstream emission. So if we map that out, the lithium battery started out four times better than lead acid battery. That was in the early 1990s when it was introduced. And then Again, in that metric, from that, from then to the introduction of the Tesla sedan, energy density improved by almost uh, almost two and a half to threefold. It was a remarkable a remarkable improvement since the introduction of the Tesla sedan. Uh, battery chemistry measured in energy density per pound of battery in a car. It's kept it's got about a little bit, you know, twenty or thirty percent. Some cases, some formulations, forty percent better than that. That's not nothing as an improvement, but it's not a 400% improvement. It's not a Moore's law improvement. And, and where batteries are today in terms of its, the energy density compared to conventional vehicles is that the conventional cars, energy density, that is energy stored per pound of fuel and propulsion equipment, the engine plus fuel, the conventional car is 20 fold better than an electric car. That's That gap is locked into the differences in physical chemistry of hydrocarbons versus lithiated chemicals, just the nature of the universe we live in. That gap is not going to be closed by invoking Moore's law 
changes in battery chemistry. It's not going to happen. Similar to the sort of the inevitability of a sort of cheaper, better claims, we hear the assertion constantly that EVs are inherently simpler machines. They're just, they're just simpler compared to that old internal combustion engine technology. And that technology of the old internal combustion engine, it's maxed out. You know, it's 100 years old. There's no innovation remaining. Now, let me let me pick on Dan Neal again. He said, I quote, compared to EVs, few moving parts, the complexity of modern gas-powered vehicles terrifies me. And combustion technology is about as good as it will ever get, end quote. Well, you know, I hate to disagree. Well, actually, I don't hate to disagree. The reality is, in fact, otherwise, it's invert. He's got it upside down in many respects. Conventional cars do have complex thermomechanical systems called the engine and the automatic transmission. And they're made from hundreds of components, but they're mated to a very simple fuel system, a tank with a liquid with one moving part pump. EVs inverse the complexity. The propulsion system is a simple mo motor with one or two moving parts, but the fuel tank is a complex electrochemical system made from hundreds of parts, sometimes thousands, with thousands of welds, include a cooling system, sensors, and control electronics. And the EV drivetrain requires more than double the quantity of expensive microcontrollers and power electronics compared to a conventional car. Again, it's a flip of complexity. You go from a complex propulsion system and a simple fuel tank, conventional car, to a complex fuel tank, to a simple propulsion system. It's a, it's, a, it's a complexity inversion, but it doesn't mean that they're inherently simpler. It's just different. As for the claim that we're at the end of innovation for combustion engines, that there's no more headroom left, if you like. You don't, you don't have to be uh, an automotive engineer and, and, and be a tout for GM or Volkswagen to just go to the technical literature. You can find this with the magic Google machine. There are myriad radical advances in internal combustion engine technology proposed demonstrated and even built it's uh, it's in and many are commercially available it's just not widely used because they're more expensive price matters but engines with double the thermodynamic efficiency of today's average have been demonstrated and uh fabricated and in some cases already deployed and used commonly in non-automotive non applications and in some, some new internal combustion engine designs, in fact, have as few moving parts as an electric motor. Go figure. <laughs> so much for the complexity argument. And greater advances are still possible. In fact, put in mineral terms, if you think about the extraction of minerals from the earth, it, in which to state again, my basic premise, this is the metric that really does matter because the Earth's surface that we can live on, that we can occupy, or we, or humans and animal life and our food process can, can are are uh, anchored. This is the uh, this is the fragile thin layer that environmentalists used to worry about. So, in terms of overall mineral resource requirements, a one percent improvement in combustion efficiency for a conventional car is equal in environmental gain terms to a ten percent improvement in battery electric tech. So. Uh, the minerals matter. These facts matter. So let me restate what I said when I started this episode. It is true that the advent of lithium battery chemistry is one of history's sort of rare technology pivots, uh, enabling all kinds of collateral inventions in many areas, not just cars. And electric cars are a different kind of model, and they're consequential. But they're not a revolution the same as the invention of the car. 
And absent the prohibition banning the sale of internal combustion engines, which, as I said in that first episode, is on the books in 12 states in America, uh, it's effectively on the books with the proposed rule from the US EPA for the year 2032. But absent a ban, the widespread use of EVs is going to depend on the resolution of two questions. When and can EVs reach cost parity in buying them with conventional cars? And when and if and how can EVs reach operational convenience parity with conventional cars? These are both technical questions, and they're both anchored in the battery chemistry. The price, begin with the price. The price of an EV is utterly dominated by the fact of so much mining and mineral processing needed to make that half that half ton battery. And thus that means the future price of the EV is now essentially in the hands of foreign mining and refining companies, because that's where 90% to 95% of all the activity occurs. So that's why so far the EVs so far in the electric are in the electric car category. You know, sticker prices of EVs are typically over 60,000, but whatever the sticker price, the actual cost, because remember sticker prices are what the car dealers and the manufacturers can choose to sell a car for. If they're competing, they can sell below manufacturing cost. And in effect, that's what's going on with both Ford and GM, with both of them having admitted that they're losing money and all the cars are making. So here's Ford, you know, over a century into making automobiles and they can't, they can't make money manufacturing a car. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. But anyway, back to back to where we are. There are no EVs, none, in outside of China, and China is a special case. There are no EVs in the lowest price category for vehicles. So the category where you can buy a car, a brand new car for 16 to 20, $22,000. There are about a dozen uh, conventional cars in that price category. The claim that EVs are getting cheaper fast and will soon reach parity, and you won't need subsidies anymore, is entirely anchored in the idea that the cost of the batteries will collapse. And that means that you're making big assumptions about mining and the mining industry. I can restate this. Like I've said it many times in previous podcasts. This is the point at which it's important to remember. About 70% of the cost of making the battery for the EV is the cost of buying the materials to make that battery. So that means that if you if you get free labor subsidized by the government, you get free heart, free assembly subsidized by the government and taxpayers, the cost of the battery is still high results in a vehicle being more expensive in costs than a conventional vehicle. And it's determined entirely by what goes on upstream in the mining and refining industries. The claim that battery costs are plummeting is a hindsight claim. Yes, battery costs have come down a lot in the last uh, 10 or 15 years. They're now on the proverbial asymptote, getting better only incrementally. In fact, in the last two or three years, uh, electric car battery prices and lithium battery prices in general have been rising. They've been rising because of supply chain issues, they've been rising because of mineral cost increases, and they've been rising because of pricing power that the producers of the minerals from copper to lithium have. And that's going to stay in place for a long time. So we know that there could be more minerals supplied from the world, but what we also know is that the world is not mining enough minerals to meet the goals of an all EV future. We're not now mining, more importantly, not only are we not now mining enough minerals, there are no plans in place to mine enough minerals to have all the world drive EVs or all the world sales of cars be EVs. So you're not, we're not talking about 
conversion of the entire fleet by the year 2030. We're talking about all new cars sold will be EVs by 2030 or 2035. In order to affect that, a lot more minerals will have to be mined, not just cobalt for some, but many batteries or some, or nickel or lithium, but basic metals, especially copper and aluminum. We know for a fact, based on data from, uh, from the mining industries, that roughly 10% of what's required in terms of investment is now in play or planned for the next decade to meet those kinds of mineral demands. What will happen? Well, you know, um, prices of minerals will go up. That means the prices of batteries will go up. There won't be enough minerals to supply the dreams. And that means there won't be the quantity of EVs that people imagine. But we're on the path to try to subsidize it. We'll find out what happens. What we do know is, as the IEA has reported, and even the New York Times has pointed out its stories about electric cars, the average time from a new mine to a mine that's operating, doing the exploration, opening up a new mine, the average time to open a mine is about 10 to 15 years. It can be a lot longer. It's rarely shorter. You could do the arithmetic here. If you haven't done the exploration and committed to spending today, there aren't going to be the quantity of new mines by the year 2033. And that's just a simple fact. That's a fact that's being totally ignored or papered over with the claims that if we just throw subsidies and throw promises at the market, that the mines will suddenly appear. If you spend enough money, the mines will show up. And if the prices go up, the mines will eventually show up. But not in a year, not in two years. And very unlikely within a decade, a point at which in time, uh, many governments are assuming the only car you'll be allowed to buy will be one made with minerals mined elsewhere, <laughs> maybe assembled here, uh, with, with minerals that probably won't be available, almost certainly won't be available. And, and whoever supplies it determines the price. And we know a lot about this market concentration in general when it comes to products like oil and gas, products like t-shirts, products like cars. And when it comes to mineral supplies, the overwhelming majority of minerals that are supplied to so-called energy minerals, are they're located outside of the United States and the European Union. That is not just the mines, but the refineries. Like the Germany, the German government uh, just issued a report, uh, which, I, you know, I, you could say there, there are other, our government has not issued a report like quite this stark, this is what the German report said earlier this year, and I quote, none of the raw materials required for battery style manufacturing are currently mined in significant quantities in Europe. And it also said, notwithstanding the increase in recycling and European raw material projects that have been announced, this important dependency will remain largely unchanged by 2030, end quote. Well, same is true in the United States. Uh, in the next episode, I'm going to talk more about um, the geopolitics of this and the economic consequences of the geopolitics. But for the viewpoint of claiming that batteries are going to get cheap and become rad radically increased in, in production quantity and there'll be plenty of energy minerals, the cheap part depends both on if there's enough mining and the behaviors of the foreign market suppliers who have market dominance. China is you doubtless know if you're following this kind of issue, China has double the market share in energy minerals that OPEC has with oil. And China's busily expanding its mining investments in Africa and South America. In fact, it's on track right now to raise its share of the refined lithium market. Right now, China 
provides one quarter of the world's refined lithium and will be at one third of the world's refined lithium within two years. They also, uh, by the way, produce uh, more like 70 to 80 percent of many of the other key refined minerals that go into batteries. Other countries are following uh, China's model. Indonesia has a new policy. They're the world's top nickel producer. Nickel's critical for batteries. Their new policy prohibits the export of raw mineral nickel ore and requires the construction of local refineries. They're spending billions of dollars on new refineries there. Uh, so they will have market dominance in nickel. They have market dominance in nickel ore, but in refined nickel soon. South America, as two thirds of the world's low cost lithium resources are in South America about one third of production. There's talk there of a lithium cartel. Uh, last time last time anybody thought about this, it's pretty clear what the effects of any cartel are is with respect to uh, pricing. Uh, and even if the, even if you imagine that the, the minerals market were to be somehow uniquely free of price manipulation, just the basic economics supply and demand, it's the supply, it's being subsidized, that is subsidizing factories to to make batteries subsidizing people to buy battery powered cars the laws of supply and demand where the the demand is taking off but the supply is not tells you a lot about where prices are going to go it's inevitable prices are going to go up the international monetary fund did a to my uh knowledge at this point the only comprehensive uh economic study of the price impacts from the mineral demands that are coming from all the subsidies for battery factories globally. Uh, they looked at the long run, one century long history of, of metals and minerals pricing. They did this because uh, essentially all the metals and minerals are needed for batteries, are used for other purposes as well, from appliances to computers, all manners of things, weapon systems. And they looked at the long run history of metals pricing. They looked at the new demands that are coming and they reached a conclusion and it was uncomplicated. It was very clear, quote, that various metals will reach historical peaks in price for an unprecedented sustained period of roughly a decade. So they're basically saying sometime in the 2030s, if this continues, enough supply might come on come online to bring the price back down. It's going to be very ugly along the way to that path. Well, then let's change horses in terms of the lithium battery chemistry and the economic consequences of pushing markets faster and harder through subsidies and mandates into an all EV future. And that's the refueling infrastructure, refueling those batteries. So, and I'm doing it this way because if you just think about it from a high level perspective, you have to do things to make the batteries, that is spend money, make minerals, which cause emissions and have costs. Importantly, the costs are poorly modeled and poorly understood. And then once the batteries are made, you have to refuel them, recharge them. And for that, you have to build infrastructures that have costs. And those infrastructure costs are determined by trying to achieve uh, convenience and performance that's comparable to the cars you're replacing. Now, that is, is it as convenient to refuel your EV as it is to refuel a conventional car? Well, for, for multi-car households uh, that have a garage and that can uh, have have the tolerance for having a car that can be charged overnight? The answer is yes, it's very convenient. And there's no question it's very convenient. In fact, 90% of all EVs purchased in the United States are purchased as a second or third car. Uh, again, by wealthy households and households that have a garage. Plug your car in at night, it's convenient. 
Uh, it doesn't require any any particularly onerous activity on the road. And episodically, a handful of EV drivers today, as a percentage, use on uh, on road fast charging. But if you if you look at the data, uh, JD Powers did a survey, and they conf they confirmed that for luxury car buyers, and that's what what they determined that most EVs are luxury car buyers, they buy the car primarily for its performance. Uh, not because it's convenient, because they, like, they love the performance. You know, I suspect that they, they like to be on kind of virtue signaling too, because they're unaware of the fact that they've emitted so much CO2 by the mere act of purchasing that vehicle. But that's that information is sort of bleeding into the market. But for automakers to make EVs uh, useful, as a primary and only source of transportation for the majority, if not all citizens, that's a whole different thing. Then we have a simple and inconvenient fact that about one third of American health households overall have a garage, own a garage. So the fueling infrastructure, the charging infrastructure, gonna have to begin to, to deal with the challenges of where you put charging ports uh, in neighborhoods, apartments. On all, in an all EV world, this becomes very complicated. In theory, in principle, you could work this out. A lot of people have made lots of proposals, but all the proposals have uh, economic consequence. So let's start with one of the first economic consequences. For those for, for the behaviors that we have today, which is for those wealthy enough to afford an EV, and for those who have a garage, that's millions of people. In fact, probably it constitutes 50 million, a 50 million car market in the United States alone. That's a multi-household, multi-car household market in the United States with garages. But if everybody that has a garage and has a second or third car makes their second or third car an EV and charges it at night, this will overload the distribution transformers in all those neighborhoods. In fact, the California Energy Commission did a, uh, did a study on precisely this, and they reached this as, again, I'll quote, it's a simple, clear, stark conclusion quote, more than 95% of residential transformers would be overloaded, end quote, in an all-EV world of overnight uh, charging in garages. Well, okay, uh, you're just replacing transformers, quote, just. Well, that has an economic cost. And replacing the transformers is not only has an economic cost because you're replacing them before they're uh, useful lifespan, but replacing them at a time when the cost of those transformers has, in the last few years has gone up 300% because of supply chain issues, labor issues, uh, unlikely to go, go back down significantly. And the transformers you need to put on the poles are bigger, more expensive transformers because the electrical load for a typical house is a few kilowatts. The electrical load for a typical overnight charger is about five kilowatts, could be seven kilowatts. That power level requires a bigger transformer. Essentially every house becomes equivalent to two or three houses worth of load. You can do the math here. That means you're spending money. You're spending not millions of dollars. You're spending hundreds of billions of dollars in transformer upgrades just for the neighborhoods that have garages when all those garages have an EV in it being charged overnight. And then we have the other, uh, other challenge, which of course is producing the energy to charge the vehicles. We're essentially shifting, uh, you know, spending the money for that. Shift, we're shifting the primary energy from mobility from liquids to electricity. And that sounds really efficient, okay? Uh, in many respects, it is efficient. Electricity, uh, for many purposes, is the far most efficient way to achieve 
certain tasks, perform certain missions, and some missions can't be performed except with electricity, like making lasers work, for example, or spinning electric motors. But in the underlying economics, what's counter counterintuitively interesting is just measured in BTU terms, measuring moving large quantities of energy, the energy cost of transport of electricity using wires and transformers is 20 times higher than the, than the energy cost of transporting oil and pipelines and tanks. That's, I'm talking about the transportation charges. It's a, it's a gap that's locked into the, to sort of the physics of energy. Can't, can't easily change that. That shows up in what it costs to buy a charger. Uh, the overnight charger that's in a garage, yeah, three to $5,000, not crazy expensive. But the fast chargers, which are the key to making EVs useful for everybody. So you can charge while you're driving somewhere when your fuel tank is empty, when your battery is discharged. Those fast chargers that can give you a fill up in 20 to 40 minutes, those are far higher power levels. They're not three to seven kilowatts, they're 300 to 400 kilowatts. And those those chargers, the superchargers, they can cost about $400,000. Some of them cost half a million dollars. So a four port supercharger, half a million dollars, a four a port, four a hose gasoline pump, about $100,000 to $150,000. So you're tripling to quadrupling the cost of the fueling infrastructure that you need for people to drive vehicles normally the way they're accustomed. If you run out of fuel, you're driving on vacation somewhere, you're going to have to stop. You don't want to stop overnight. Uh, well, you could. You could force everybody to stop overnight for every trip, every three or 400 miles, you spend the night somewhere. Or you can spend a half an hour to an hour somewhere instead of three to five minutes, which is what fast chargers do. And even that triples the cost of the infrastructure to deliver the same service online charging that's not the same in convenience because it still takes somewhere between three to five times longer than a conventional than conventional fueling. This is just money <laughs> in Washington. That's how people think. But to give you a sense of the how little uh how how much more uh, work has to be done uh to subsidize the imagined all EV future for the convenience of on-road charging. The Inflation Reduction Act, the misnamed Inflation Reduction Act, as most people know, has $7 billion allocated in subsidies to fund thousands of on-road superchargers. Well, that sounds like a lot of money. To replicate the convenience and the location of existing gasoline pumps, there's 1 million gasoline pumps in America located at about 150,000 filling stations. To replace those with fueling stations, fueling pumps, never mind the, the grid infrastructure, just the chargers, you need over $100 billion, not $7 billion. And that doesn't count the cost of the electrical structure upgrades that are required because that fueling station goes from having the electrical demand on the grid equal to a convenience store to the electrical demand equal to a steel mill or a small town just for one fueling station, which means that the local distribution loop has to be upgraded. You know, Boston Consulting Group did a study looking at the distribution upgrade charges uh, to handle to handle chargers everywhere for EVs. And they came up with a number that somewhere between a half a trillion and a trillion dollars of infrastructure upgrades are gonna be needed that are not in anybody's budget. But if that is done, if you totally spend that kind of money, it'll be in your budget. It'll be in the cost of your electricity, either for your home, your business, or when you fill the, when you fill a car up. I and mean, those are just the economic 
physical realities of the, if you like, the um, electrical engineering of charging a uh, 100 kilowatt hour battery or 80 kilowatt hour battery. Now, then this last trope, I just want to briefly talk about the reliability, the claim that EVs are inherently more reliable. Well, you remember I just said they're not inherently less complex. Complexity is flipped. Uh, the complexity is in the battery pack. So batteries can be made reliable. Internal combustion engines can be made reliable. I mean, simplistically speaking, because the complexities are similar, when both are operating at comparable scales and, su and supply chain efficiencies and quality control, probably comparably reliable. Most modern cars are astonishingly reliable, take essentially zero maintenance. Uh, most people don't do very much to maintain their car. So the cost equivalence in terms of convenience or uh, that is not talking about the capital cost, but the overall maintenance costs, it's very, very similar. In fact, there's been lots of studies uh, in the UK and Consumer Reports recently pointing out that so far uh, of the cars which are enough of them on the road, uh, seven out of 10 of the cars that Consumer Reports tested last year were less reliable than the average car. Less reliable so far, not the trope that they're more reliable. Uh, I think eventually they'll become comparably reliable. I don't think there's any reason to expect that won't happen. But right now, that's not the case, which means the trope that they're more reliable because they're inherently simpler is not true. They aren't inherently simpler. They're differently complex, and they will eventually be as reliable, but they're not. And there's one other just sort of operational reality. The insurance costs uh, for EVs are starting to rise and are almost certainly going to stay and be higher than for a conventional car for a very simple reason. Not because an EV is more expensive. Assume you could compare a comparably priced EV and conventional car. EVs, when they get in accidents, if there's any damage to the battery pack, almost in almost every case, that is a write-off for the vehicle because the battery can't be repaired the way an internal combustion engine can be repaired. Uh, especially for the battery packs that become an integral part of the structural frame of the vehicle, which is done uh, in order to uh, minimize the weight penalty from the batteries. Again, lots of studies on this. You can find them. Uh, they're not widely publicized. But on average, what we're finding is that the uh, there's roughly a 25% to 30% increase in insurance costs associated with EVs because of this, this inconvenient fact that if they're in an accident, you uh, have higher higher repair costs or write-off costs. So the, the insurers are, are taking that into account. And let's see, the last thing I should talk about, uh, recycling. You have to could do a whole episode just on recycling. Let me just say two things about recycling to alleviate the problem of upstream minerals demands because the claim is, oh, we can, we can solve the problem of expensive EB batteries because we'll just recycle these expensive minerals. We're just create the perfect circular economy and we'll recapture it all. Two things. First, the EV batteries are likely to and claim the last 10 years, which means as we're building out millions and millions of more EVs, there won't be any available for recycling until the 2030s. So they won't alleviate any supply demand to, uh, whatsoever for a very long time. Uh, and then when they and then when it's time to recycle them, they're very difficult and expensive to recycle. Yes, you can recycle almost anything. It's always about the money. And so far, e-batteries e look extremely expensive to recycle. And in fact, Volkswagen just launched a consortium uh, not to recycle batteries, to study the challenges, to think about how to reduce the costs to eventually recycle all these batteries. If I were betting, I'd bet most of them would be just trash, but that's, or just ground up, you know, and then you can, then you can recapture the 
a couple of the essential metals, easily like copper and aluminum. But whatever the outcome, the key point I want you to keep in mind is that the claim, which I think is correct, that most of these batteries will last a decade, means that in the next 10 years, building batteries that last a decade, is none of those batteries are going to be available for recycling until well into the 2030s. So we're going to have to ramp up global mining by on the order of a thousand percent just to build the batteries to have available for recycling eventually. And then it'll just be a chase between the cost of high cost of recycled minerals versus the high cost of net new minerals. This is not going to end well, but it's that that's in the future. So enough about all that. We um, we've beat up enough on the tropes of EV price parity and convenience. Uh, I think not because I'm going to end with this thought and then tell you what we're going to talk about in the next episode. Not because there won't be lots more EVs. Even if all the mandates go away, all the subsidies go away, millions, millions more will be sold. But by my calculation, and I suspect the automakers have done this calculation, even if the subsidies went away, uh, and even if the batteries remained expensive, I think the latter definitely happens, the former probably happens. Uh, there are millions of people who will buy EVs for all kinds of reasons. Some of the performance features are kind of fun. You can make vehicles rotate on their axis and they can crab walk and you can use your power ports to run stuff for camping and it has insane acceleration, all kinds of reasons. The market looks like at least 50 million of the nearly 300 million cars in America. America has almost, almost as many cars as human beings, uh, counting SUVs and pickup trucks. At least 50 million of those are in multi-car uh, households, which are uh, potential markets that will flip to an EV. That's a big market. It is. It's a really big market. Uh, it's not an all-EV world. It's certainly not an all-EV world in in, uh, in India and in South America. And it's not an all-EV world here, nor will it account for the a pro rata share of miles because uh, long-distance miles are still going to be dominated by internal combustion engines. But it's a lot of vehicles. And a lot of them to be sold. It's a big market, and everyone is uh, is afraid that Elon Musk will simply own that market. And so far, he does. <laughs> he utterly dominates that market, and he's coming after the truck market, as I said earlier. Which I'm not talking about the the useful trucks that are used on construction sites. I'm talking about the pickup trucks that are used to buy groceries and and drive around all over the country yeah, for for fun and because they're and because they're episodically useful. It's a big market, very profitable. Lots more EVs coming, but they are not going to get cheap fast. They're not necessarily going to get reach price parity for a very, very long time, and nor will they lead to reduced CO2 emissions. They will lead to some other problems, though, in the supply chains and the geopolitics of energy minerals, which is the subject we'll turn to in the fourth and last episode in this series on the impossible dream of an all EV future. So, until that episode, and with the usual reminder that Please give us a rating if you're enjoying uh, and sharing these episodes. And until uh, part four and the final stake in the heart of silly tropes with EVs, this is Mark Mills signing off for this episode of The Last Optimist. Optimist.